Well, good morning. Everybody awake? Hey, next week we promise to have hot sauce for the uh, burritos. We, uh, you know, I don't know what happened, but yeah, yeah we, we had a whole lot left over last week, so uh, we cut the number down, so make sure you take one before you go. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into um, the rest of chapter, well, not the rest of chapter one, but uh, really only three verses, and we're going to save the rest for next week. So uh, as, as you well know, I am fully capable of drawing a whole lesson out of three verses. Um, I, I can draw three, three weeks out of three verses, but let me pray for us and we'll jump into it this morning. Lord, we are grateful for your love and your mercy and your presence here, and we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that all those years ago you inspired Peter to write this letter, and I, I'm grateful that we have it, that we can study it, that we can unpack it and see how it can apply to our lives, and Lord, it, it truly does, and we're grateful for that. So would you uh, speak to us today, and would you help us to take in all that you would have us to learn and apply it to our lives so that we might be fruitful and effective in our lives here in this earth. And we just pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to make a, uh, I guess, an apology. Uh, I know I've done this multiple times. I am in the process right now of, of studying Ephesians, which is written by Paul, and I'm writing a devotionary on Ephesians. So, sometimes you're going to hear me say Paul instead of Peter. Like yesterday, I don't know how many of you caught it, but in my email that went out about this week's lesson, I referenced Peter's letter to the Ephesians. Um, Peter didn't write a letter to the Ephesians, uh, Paul did. So if I misspeak and plug in Paul where there should be Peter, it's only because I got Paul on the brain. Um, so, uh, And then I'm preaching this this Sunday and, and working on Matthew 10, which is written by Jesus, or not written by Jesus, but it's Jesus speaking. So I've now, I've got three different people on my brain. So who, who knows what's going to come out today? Well, we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, and we're really only looking at three verses. And they're, they're an interesting uh, series of verses, and they're going to kind of set the stage for where we're going next week. And next week, we're going to dig into the whole idea of false teachers, which is pretty uh, core to what Peter's dealing with in this letter. The, the kind of the headline I've put on this whole study is, you know, when, when life is a jungle, and it is, you need a guide. You know, we live in really strange, bizarre times. I'm 67 years old, and I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, don't know if it's ever going to get any better. Doubt it. Um, it's going to get stranger, I think, and more bizarre, and it can literally be a jungle. So what, what do we do? And I really feel like Second Peter is really perfect for this time in which we live. And Peter, as we kind of talked about last week, Peter's the perfect guide. He's the perfect person to lead us through these kind of strange, dark days we're going through. And it's all because of what he's been through. This world can be dangerous. This world can oftentimes be deadly. Um, I was telling a couple of the guys just before we started, um, I saw on the news uh, yesterday or the day before, um, you know, they've had all these protests going on up in uh, Washington, D.C. for uh, the pro-choice. 
crowd, and there was a gentleman who went to these protests. He was an African-American gentleman, probably in his 50s or 60s, and for, from what I could tell, he was there alone. He was the only uh, pro-life person really standing there, and he had a sign that said, Jesus loves you, and so there's hundreds of pro-choice protesters. He's got his sign. It says, Jesus loves you, and he'd say to every one of them, I am so glad your mama didn't abort you. And he would just say it over and over again. And they would scream at him, and they would call him every name in the book, and they wished he was dead, and they wished his mama had aborted him, and he would just keep, I'm so glad your mama didn't abort you. Jesus loves you. He's got a great plan for you. And, and, just, and finally, that somebody interviewed him. They said, how in the world can you do this? And he says, because this is what I've been called to do. I'm a child of God, I have a message, and I'm going to share it. And, man, it, it blew me away, because I thought, first of all, I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be holding that sign, and I probably wouldn't be saying what this guy's saying. But this is what we're talking about. They, the people he was trying to express love to, and I don't think it was sarcasm. I, I'm, I'm pretty good at sarcasm, and I usually recognize it. He meant what he was saying. He really was truly glad that their mamas didn't abort them. Because now they could hear about Jesus Christ. We live in tough times. And, and it's going to get harder and harder for us to speak up. And Jesus warned us about this. And Peter heard Jesus say these things. Just listen to some of the things that Peter heard from the lips of Jesus. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. I don't think when Peter heard this, when any of the other disciples heard this, they went, wow, that's great. Good news. Wonderful. No, they, they hear it the same way we hear it. I, I don't know that I want to sign up for that. I don't know that I want to go through that. He told them, the world hates you because you're not of the world. I, I, I pulled you out of the world. I selected you out of the world, and now the world hates you, just like the world hates me. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So here's Jesus telling the disciples, Peter being one of them, what they have to face when he leaves when he goes. So it's a jungle, and Peter knew it was a jungle, and he, he knew that the Lord had said, I am going to send you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. This is the passage I'm going to be preaching on this Sunday, and it's, it's Jesus sending out the 12 on their first missionary adventure. He's going to commission them, and he's going to tell them, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 10, he's going to say, hey, you're going to go out and do great things. You're going to heal like me. You're going to cast out demons like me. You're going to have power. You're going to have authority. And I think they were pumped. And then in verse 16, there's a shift in the narrative. He goes, but I'm sending you out a sheep among wolves. And then he goes on and he begins to tell them, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be taken before kings and governors for my namesake. And and I think their countenance probably dropped. They're like, wait a minute. We're going to go from healing and casting out demons and having authority to being dragged before authorities and being betrayed and put to death? And that's exactly what he tells them, which is what happens after Jesus leaves. Things get really tough. He says, you will be hated for my namesake. And that's true of you and I in this room. You, you may not feel it. You may not experience it, but... Here's what we know. If it, if it had been you standing in Washington, D.C. with that sign, 
saying the same things that man was saying, they would hate you just as much as they hate him. And by extension, they do hate you and I because we believe the same thing. So we are hated by the world. So it is a jungle. It, it is tough. It is difficult. We do live in difficult days and difficult times, so what do we do? Well, this may sound trite, but I, I really look at Peter as kind of our safari guide. Never been on a safari, um, but if you're going to be out in the jungle, you want somebody who's been there, who, who knows what's going on, who knows how to navigate the territory, the terrain, and, and Peter is perfect. Uh, he's a guy who got it, as we looked at last week. He understands what we're facing because he's been there. And once again, I want to kind of go back and look at why is Peter the perfect guide for this kind of environment? What, what does he know that maybe we don't know? Or why should we listen to him? Why should the people to whom he's writing listen to Peter? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Who? The disciples, including Peter. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day. This is going to be a recurring theme in Luke's book of Acts. As he records the early days of the church, as the disciples filled with the Holy Spirit went out, we looked at last week, you know, Peter preached this incredible sermon, and 3,000 people get saved in one sitting. It's, a, it's an amazing deal, and it's beginning to spread, and news is getting out, and the religious leaders of Israel don't like this news. They don't like the fact that Peter's walking around saying that Jesus, the man they crucified, has risen from the dead. That was their greatest fear, right? That's why they posted guards. They don't want anybody to steal the body. They don't want anybody saying that this guy literally was the Son of God and raised from the dead. But that's exactly what happened. So they get arrested. What happens? The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This is in chapter 5. This is a, a, yet another instance where Peter is getting arrested. What did Jesus say? The world's going to hate you. What does he tell them in chapter 10 of Matthew? He says, hey, when I'm gone, you're going to get arrested and you're going to be dragged before the council, which is the Sanhedrin. You're going to be put on trial. You're going to be dragged before kings and governors. And here it is happening. They get arrested once again, one more time. Why? For preaching the gospel. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And I love this part. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name of what? The name of Jesus. They counted it worthy, honorable, to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. I, I doubt there's anybody in this room that would count it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, you might, after the fact, once you've had time to look back and see what God accomplished through that, but we don't wake up in the morning longing for it, do we? Lord, let me suffer for your name today. Let, let me... Come under duress for your, you know, let me get arrested for your namesake today. Yet here's Peter and the other disciples doing just that. Here's, here's what's amazing. We fast forward to chapter 12 of Acts. We're told that James, the brother of John, is put to death by Herod because he hates him, because he hates the message. 
And then it says, at about that same time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, the religious leaders of Israel, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, what do you think his intentions are? To do the same thing to Peter that he just did to James. He's going to methodically go through the disciples and put them to death because it pleases the Jewish religious leaders. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. And I believe with every intent to put him to death. And Peter knew that. See, everything Jesus told them is taking place. Peter knew what it was like to be in the jungle. And to be under attack. To be, it's interesting. Jesus told the disciples that you're going to be wolves or sheep among wolves. This is exactly what's happening. They're prey to the predators. Who's the predator? It's the religious leaders. It's the high priest, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. But it's also Herod and those who represent the Roman government. So he's a veteran. He knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to be under duress, to be under attack, to be arrested, to be beaten. But he had remained faithful through the whole process. He didn't give in. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He didn't go back to fishing. He just kept plugging along faithfully relying on those survival skills that we talked about last week that he mentioned to these people in his letter. The things that we've been given by God to equip us to do the job that we've been called to do. What were they? Well, it begins with our faith, but on faith you're to build virtue or moral excellence. And then on top of that, knowledge. Grow in your knowledge, your understanding of God and this incredible gift that he's given you through Jesus Christ. On that, build self-control. And it doesn't mean that you control yourself, but that you understand that you now have the power to say no to the things that you didn't used to say no to. You don't have to live the way you used to live. It's really spirit control, living under the control of the spirit. And it leads to steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, being able to stand firm even in the midst of everything that's around us, which results in further, greater godliness, Christ-likeness, holiness, set-apartness. And then we were able to love those around us. And I don't think this just means your brothers in Christ. It means to love those who hate you, those who persecute you. Just like that gentleman being able to sit there and tell people who are literally screaming expletives in his face and wishing him dead and saying, Jesus loves you and I'm so glad your mama didn't abort you. That, that takes something. And where does that begin? It begins with faith, but then all of these things build one upon the other, and it always ends up with what? Love. Love for God, love for the brothers, love for your enemies. See, this is what Peter knew. Peter had experienced this. Peter had lived this out in his life, and, and so he's the perfect guy to help the people to whom he's writing, and by extension, you and I, to how do you make it through the jungle? How do you come out the other side? How do you survive when you're surrounded by predators and dangers of all kinds? See, he says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, what? They keep you from being ineffective. Here's what he's really saying. And I'm not reading into this. This is reflected in the language that he used. He says, if they're yours, remember he's writing to Christians. They share the same faith that he has. If they're yours, and they are, that's really kind of what he's inferring. If these qualities are yours, and they are, and are increasing, and they should be. In other words, you should, we as Christians should sit in there and go, man, I wish I had some of that. 
I wish I, I was more godly. I wish I was more pers persevering. I wish I had more brotherly affection. Well, you should. The, the problem is not that you lack it. It's that you're not using it. It's, it I used the analogy, uh, I guess it was Thursday night, this kind of popped into my head. It'd be like if I gave you a million dollars. If I put a million dollars into your checking account, and I said, hey, just out of love, I've been blessed, so I'm going to bless you. I just put a million dollars in your checking account. Your first kind of, kind of reaction would be, <laughs> yeah, you liar. You wouldn't believe it. You, you wouldn't think that I had a million dollars. And so you probably wouldn't even go check your account. You just write it off. And you'd never avail yourself of something incredible that's been given to you. That's really the picture here. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. It's been put into our account, but we don't ever tap into it. It just sits there. That's the picture that's painted by Peter. They're yours. These things should be increasing, and they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. If you feel ineffective in your Christian walk, if you feel unfruitful in your experience with the Lord, it's not because you lack anything. It's because you don't avail yourself of all that you've been given. You're doing it in the flesh. You're doing it in your own strength. And guess what? That will always fail. It will always result in ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. But see, Peter's saying, no, no, you should have just the opposite. You should not be useless. You should not be unproductive as a believer. You should be just the opposite. Each one of us should be producing fruit. We should be effective in our walk, in, our, in everything that we do. Remember, this is all about life and godliness. Life meaning everything about you, your inner being, your outer being. Your, if you're a dad, being the best dad you can possibly be. If you're, if you're a husband, if you're a business owner, if you're an employee, whatever it is you do, whoever you are, everything about you should be effective and fruitful. You see, the key here is this idea of the knowledge of the Lord. You're growing in your knowledge of the Lord every day of your life. It's increasing. It's improving. You know more about Him now than you did yesterday. You understand more about His grace, His mercy, His abundance in your life. Everything He's done, you, that's, that should be growing. See, the knowledge of Christ as Savior goes well beyond some point in your life where you said yes to Him. You know, when I was seven years old and I walked down the aisle of my dad's church and I gave my life to Jesus, that can't be the extent of my knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. I was seven years old. I really didn't know much about Jesus other than the stories I'd heard in Sunday school. I didn't understand his grace, his mercy. But now, 60 years later, I know a whole heck of a lot more about Jesus than I did at seven. After 60 more years of life and experience and living in the jungle. See, that's what this is all about. As your knowledge of him grows, you become more effective, more fruitful, more abundant in your life. As your knowledge of Christ increases, so do those things. That's really what Peter is telling us. Growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ each and every day of your life. That's why in chapter 3, he, he's going to tell these very same people, be on guard then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, 
in between chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and where we are in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, is his diatribe, really, against false teachers. People who've come into the church, and they're teaching heresy. They're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching false words about Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And he says, man, be on guard. Don't get carried away. Grow in your knowledge of Jesus so that you understand truth from falsehood, fact from fiction. That's the message he has for them. That's the message he has for us. Because again, we're under attack. We're not just under attack by those who want to kill us. We're under attack by those who want to deceive us, who want to present falsehood as truth. And, and that's what happens in the church. I don't think any Sunday you come to church, there's, you need to worry about somebody trying to kill you in spite of what we saw happen just recently. It could happen. That's why we have care teams. We know that there are people who are angry enough, crazy enough, who might come into a local fellowship and take our lives. But that's really not our fear, or that shouldn't be our major fear. Our major fear are those who come in wolves in sheep's clothing who teach falsehood, who teach something contrary to the gospel. So that's why he says in verse 12, and again, these are just a few verses, but listen to what he says. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? Those ones that stack up on faith, moral virtue, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, righteous, good, a worthy thing to do. As long as I am in this body, remember, we, we already know he's up in years. He knows his days are numbered. Jesus told him that your, your life is going to be ended by you being led to places you don't want to go. And we know, according to church history, that he was crucified by Nero. So we, he knows his, his days are coming to an end. So he said, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. I know I'm not long for this world, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's part of the reason he's putting it in a letter. That letter can be kept, that letter can be reread, but as we'll see, there's probably more involved here than just that. You get the sense that he's pretty adamant that I want you to know these things. I want you to remember these things. All that Jesus Christ has done for you, all that he's made available to you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until I breathe my last breath, till I put off my body, till I die. See, you can almost view this as his last will and testament. Um, Every one of us should have a will. Every one of us should know where we want, whatever assets we have when we die to go. Otherwise, the government will decide it for you. you. You may think, well, I don't have much to leave. Well, your loved ones probably think more of what you're going to leave than you do. Uh, but we should have a last will and testament. And I think what he's saying is, I want you guys to have what I have. I know I'm about to leave. I know I'm about to die. And I want to share with you my, my greatest wish for you. I've often thought it would be a, a cool idea. My wife thinks this is very morbid. Um, 
I do a lot of funerals, more funerals than I'd like to do. And you hear a lot of people speak at funerals, loved ones, children, business associates. Some pastor will get up and say wonderful things about the deceased. But I thought, how cool would it be is every year, maybe in January after the first of the year, to sit down and record a video, you record yourself speaking to those attending your funeral. My wife goes, that's just, that's sick. I'm like, well, why, why is everybody else getting to talk and I don't get to talk? You know, what, why can't I tell people what I think about the Lord and what I think about where I'm going and why I hope they'll go there too? And I, th- I think it'd be cool. You know, rather than see me dead, see me alive sharing my thoughts about death and the afterlife. And I haven't done it yet. I'm still thinking about it. But um, that's really what this is. It's him sharing what what is my greatest wish for you see I would love to be able to do that and speak to my adult kids and speak to my grandkids hey keep loving Jesus I may be gone but he's not and I believe in where I'm going and I want you to as well that's really what Peter's doing here he says I'm going to keep reminding you and keep reminding you and he wants them to experience everything the Christian life has to experience because he has. He believes it. He believes all these things we talked about last week. He believes in the grace of God, peace, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. He's lived it out. He's experienced. He's felt it. He's shared it. And he goes, guys, this is what I'm leaving you. This is what you've been given. And I want you to avail yourself of all that you've been given. You have everything you need for life and godliness. So I'm going to remind you constantly. I'm going to tell you over and over again. And what's really interesting is he says, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them. What? Why why are you reminding me of things I already know? I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I don't like my wife to remind me of things that I already know. Because it irritates me. You know, well, I know, I told you I'd do it. Trust me. Why does my wife remind me? Because half the time I don't do what I said I was going to do. So she reminds me. And what's he saying? I'm going to remind you as well. You already know these things. You're already living them out. But I'm going to keep reminding you because that's how important they are. He's basically saying, don't forget what you already know. And guys, it is so easy to do that, isn't it? To forget all that Christ has done for you, all that God has given you, it's so easy to forget it. As soon as you turn on the news, as soon as you start watching what's going on in the world, you go, golly, what are we going to do? How am I going to get it out of this one? How, how are we ever going to survive this mess? And we forget. So what's Peter say? Man, I'll just keep reminding you. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just going to keep telling you this over and over and over again because it's important. It's essential. It's like Christianity 101. It's the basics. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness, and I'm going to keep telling you that because here's what I know. You are prone to forgetfulness, and so am I. The worst part is it's getting worse. The older I get, the worse it gets. You know, my wife and I were driving in the car the other day, and I said, you know, there's a, that couple in the church, 
his name is, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's like five foot ten. He's got kind of balding, and, and, and he's married to, and her, her name, she's got blonde hair. And, and, I mean, I could not think of their names. And my wife goes, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. They're the, uh, and neither one of us could think of their name. And we both looked at each other and go, God, we're getting old. And it's true. We're prone to forgetfulness. We, we're prone to forget all that God has done for us. And when you forget, you're prone to become unfaithful. That's just the reality of it. If you forget all that God has done, you will begin to moan about everything or doubt his goodness and grace. So, so when you get into a difficult time and you've forgotten all that he did before, it's like you start all over again. Well, where's God in this? Is God going to come through? Is God going to be there for me? What you should be saying is, man, I've been here before and he was faithful then. He's going to be faithful now. But we forget. And because you forget, you become unfaithful. See, forgetfulness is nothing new, right? It's amazing. If you want to do a word study, just get a concordance and look up the word remember. It's all over the Bible. And most of the time, it's coming out of the lips of God himself, either through a prophet or some other author of the scriptures. But it's always directed at God's people by God. Don't forget. Remember. You know, Moses had his own will, will in New Testament. You know, we have... All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he's reminding the people, reminding the people, reminding the people of all that God's done for him. And then he does it again near the end because he's about to die and Joshua's going to take over. But look at this in chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Remember, don't forget, constantly bring it to mind. Then he goes on. Don't become proud at that time and forget your, the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, the jungle, so to speak. And with its poisonous snakes and its scorpions where it was so hot and dry and he gave you water from a rock. Do not forget that he was there with you every step of the way. Your sandals didn't wear out. You always had plenty of water to drink. You always had food to eat, and yet what did they do about that? We're sick of manna. We're sick of quail. We're sick of this. Oh, that we could go back to the wonderful days of Egypt. Forgetfulness. They even forgot how bad it was in Egypt when they were making bricks without straw, right? We forget, and forgetfulness leads to unfaithfulness. Don't forget, says Moses. Don't forget, says Peter. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, now don't miss this. So you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant. He confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. What's the key phrase here? He's the one who gives you the power. He's the one who makes you successful. You don't do it yourself. And when you forget that, what happens? You become prideful, arrogant, boastful, unfaithful. It all becomes about you, look at me, look at how great I am, look how successful I am. He gives you the power to be successful. This is basically the same message that Peter's giving to the people to whom he's writing. You have everything you need for life and godliness. God gave it to you. 
and never forget that. Never begin to boast that, look how great I am. Look how successful I am. So what does he tell them? You have everything you need for life and godliness. Just like God gave the Israelites sandals that never wore out, water from a rock that followed them miraculously everywhere they went, manna that just descended from the sky, quail that just landed on the ground and they could pick them up and eat. You know, he did all of that. He, he took care of them. It's the same way for you and I. We have everything we need. And Peter says, don't forget it. You know it. Knowing it is wonderful. But if you forget it, it's terrible. If you know the goodness of God, never forget the goodness of God. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. And that's what's going to lead us into next week's lesson where we pick up the latter part of chapter 1 and go into chapter 2 where it's going to be all about these false teachers who are bringing false doctrine, heresy, into the church and it's beginning to influence these people. And what happens is they know something and it's true and then somebody comes in and presents something that is false and what happens? You can tend to forget what you know and begin to believe what sounds better. See, that's the danger. They know something, but don't forget that. And when we forget it, it's typically when somebody else says, you know, what's really true is this. And suddenly all that goes to the wayside. That's what Peter knows is going to happen, is going to, happen to them if they're not careful, if they're not wary, if they're not awake, if they're not paying attention to what he's trying to tell them. He, he says, I think it right. I think it righteous. I think it good. I think it, this is the will of God that I keep reminding you. And he uses this interesting phrase, I'm going to stir you up. I'm going to stir you up. That, that word in the, the Greek is really important because it literally means to wake you up. I'm going to keep waking you up. In reality, guys, that's, that's every pastor's job is to not disseminate information. Yeah, that's part of what we do, but it's to issue a wake-up call, to arouse your mind, to agitate you, to get you to think about the great things of God. Most of us don't need more doctrine, more theology. We need to deal with the theology we already have. And my job, Cody's job, Matt Lance's job is to stir you up, to wake you up, to shake you, to make you understand what it is that you have. So this is Peter's complimentary wake-up call. Every morning, the alarm goes off. Hey, guys, wake up. Hey, guys, pay attention. Wake up and smell the coffee. Let's pay attention. You're in a jungle. It's going to be tough, but don't worry. You have everything you need. I refuse to let you forget that. And that's part of what drives me to do what I do is I want to help you. I want to help me understand all that we have in Christ. And that's what Peter wants to do. Because here's reality. And I think while Peter probably didn't know this phrase, he knew the, the reality of the phrase. Nature abhors a vacuum. What does that mean? Vacuums are meant to be filled. You know, if you go to the beach and you dig a hole in the sand, what happens? It just fills with sand. It, it, nature can't stand a vacuum. It will fill it with something. And the same is true in our spiritual eyes. If you leave a vacuum, it will be filled. If these people forget, guess what? There are false teachers walking in the back door who are willing to fill the vacuum with falsehood. And that's why they have to wake up. They have to understand that truth has to be adhered to every day of your lives. You've got to be reminded every day, what, 
You've got to wake up and realize God is good. God is gracious. Failure to remember what God has provided, that he's provided everything, will leave you searching for something. I think that's, if you take the last two years of our life on this planet, here in, here in the United States, so many Christians have found themselves now searching for something. What's the answer? And I'm sitting there going, maybe it's God? Maybe it's Jesus? He's still the answer. He's, he's still got everything. He's still powerful. He's still all-knowing. He's still good and gracious. But yet we, we see people in our own fellowship are like, man, what are we going to do? What's the answer? I, I, and they start searching for something else, be it an ideology or philosophy or political movement. It's, it's God plus something else. No, it's God. It's always been God. And that's why he says, I'm going to keep badgering you, waking you up, reminding you. Listen to what Paul says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What's his point? He's got it all. God has it all. He can give you everything you need, all the grace you need. You get it at salvation. He gives you all things at all times so that you have all you need for every occasion you come into contact with. Yes, we live in a jungle, but God has equipped us for life in the jungle. He never promised us Eden, right? Not in this lifetime. We don't live in Eden. We live in a jungle. We live in a fallen world, and yet we can survive this fallen world because he's given us everything we need. So forgetting his provision leads to what? Discontentment and disillusionment. If you forget, you will become discontent. Man, this, this Christian life is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought I was going to get. This isn't as fun as I thought it would be. I don't have all the, the blessings I thought I was going to get. I thought I was going to have peace and joy and comfort and no trouble in my life. No, that's not what he said. It's like Cody's message a week before last about building your house on the solid foundation. It doesn't say you're not going to have floods, right? It doesn't say the storms aren't going to come. It almost says, yeah, they are going to come. The storms came. The winds blew. The waves crashed. But one house survives. The other one doesn't. That's the promise. It's not a storm-free life. It's a life of endurance. It's a life not of discontentment, but contentment. Listen to what Paul writes to the Galatians. This, this is, again, speaking to you and I. I'm amazed how quickly you're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. This heresy problem was all over the church. It, it was affecting anybody and everybody because so many people were now coming in and propagating falsehood. Paul was dealing with it. Peter's dealing with it. And he kept bringing people back to the gospel. Listen, we write to the Corinthians. You happily put up with whatever, whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you receive or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. That is an incredible indictment, right? You believe anybody who says anything because you've fallen asleep at the wheel. You've forgotten everything that you know, and so you'll believe anything. Don't. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Understand what you have heard and what you know, what you originally believed. Don't forget that. 
See, these two men, Peter and Paul, preached the very same gospel. What what does Paul tell the Corinthians? Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good, good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you will stand firm in it. It's the good news that saves you. If you continue to believe, continue to believe, don't forget the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Keep believing. Don't forget. Keep going back. Rehearse it. Go over it. This good news. It's the same thing Peter preached in that message that led to 3,000 conversions. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's, He's speaking to Jews, right? This is after the coming of the Holy Spirit. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What's his message? Jesus Christ came. He was the Son of God. He took on human flesh. You decided to put him to death, and you did, and yet he was raised from the dead by God because the grave couldn't hold him. That's the gospel. Don't forget it. God raised him up. He is resurrected. He is alive. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this Holy Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is Peter proclaiming the gospel to who? Lost people. We have the same gospel today. We have the same hope today. What's that gospel? What's that hope? Son of God incarnate. Jesus Christ taking on human flesh. Jesus Christ living a sinless life. Jesus Christ dying a sinner's death on the cross in my place and in your place. And then him risen from the dead. See, this is what we can't forget. All of that took place so that we might have everything we need for life and godliness. So how does he end this up? He says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. I will make every effort. But what's, what's interesting, he says, after I'm dead. That sounds kind of difficult, right? How's he going to do that? Well, we know he's writing a letter. He's writing a letter that's going to be left, and that letter was obviously kept around because we have it. They probably read it and reread it and passed it around, and it went to other churches. But I think there's more here. There's an interesting bit of history that, that brings us even more significance when he says that i'm going to keep reminding you even after i'm dead i think what he had in mind is the gospel of mark now you may have never heard this known this but it's believed by many scholars that john mark who wrote the gospel of mark was actually acting as a as a secretary for peter it's really some believe to be the gospel of peter it focuses very much on the life of Peter. And, and it's like Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. He wasn't an apostle. He was interviewing all the apostles, and then he wrote that gospel. The same thing is true of Mark. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He was not an apostle. But he interviewed Peter and wrote that gospel. So it's really, in a sense, the gospel of Peter. Many scholars believe that Mark's gospel was heavily influenced by Peter. 
He was either interviewed or he actually spoke it and then Mark wrote it down. And how did these two meet? Well, it's pretty interesting that when Peter escaped from Herod's prison, he went to the home of John Mark. Uh, he, that's where he went. It's kind of a funny story because he gets out of prison and he, he goes there and they're all gathered in the room praying that he might get out of prison. He knocks on the door. The, the servant girl sees him and she leaves him standing at the door and she goes, Peter's here. And they're like, what? Peter's here? What have they been praying for? That Peter would get out of prison. He's there and they leave him standing on the porch. It says, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Other guards stood at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him. I find that fascinating. He had to be woken up. Hey, buddy, you're not, you're not here to sleep. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and says, get, get up, quick. The chains fell off his wrist. The angel told him, get dressed, put on your sandals, and he did. He's like, okay, I don't think he's fully cognizant. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought he was, it was a vision. He thinks it's a dream. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. So what happens. He comes to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. What? Kill him like they did to James. When he realized this, he went, home, went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. This is the first in, inference we have of him getting to know John Mark. Don't know how old John Mark is. But he ends up becoming his spiritual father, much like Paul was the spiritual father of Timothy and Titus. Look at this, 1 Peter 5.13. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. A reference to John Mark. He had this relationship and many of the early church fathers regard Peter as the source of Mark's gospel. Here's just one. This is written in 130 A.D., not, not that far from the death of Peter. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said and done by the Lord. Why am I belaboring this point? Because these early church fathers, Arrhenius, believed that Peter was the source of the gospel of Mark. I think that's why... When Peter says, even after death, I'm going to keep reminding you. I think he had been working with Mark and compiling this gospel, and he knew that it would last long after he was gone. He put effort into it. He put his memory into it. He wanted to make sure they had an accurate gospel. He basically says, I'm going to haunt you after I'm gone. I'm, going to, you're, I'm not done reminding you. I'm going to continue to remind you. And here's what will lead us to next week. One of the events recorded by Mark in his gospel is the transfiguration. The other gospels have, have it as well. But this event had an impact on Peter. It says, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. This is Jesus being glorified on that mountaintop and what happens this is so typical peter peter exclaimed rabbi it's wonderful for us to be here let's make three shelters as memorials one for you one for moses one for elijah he said this because he really didn't know what else to say it's like verbal vomit for they were all terrified and jesus says no or god speaks and says 
this is my son. Listen to what he has to say. See, this would make a dramatic impact on the life of Peter. And he's going to use it next week in order to defend his apostleship to these Peter, to these people. Listen to what he says. We are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly beloved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's Peter, and we'll look at it next week, telling these people, I was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw his splendor. I heard the voice of God. We were with him. And I'm telling you, everything he's promised is true. Trust it. Remember it. Lean on it. And grow from it. So here's your questions. Why is it so important that we be constantly reminded that God has given us everything we need for living a godly life? Why do we need a proverbial wake-up call every day? Secondly, Go back and read Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 14. What does Moses indicate can threaten our ability to remember all that God has provided? And it's usually when we get fat and happy, when everything seems to be going our way. Finally, how could we each do a better job of reminding one another of God's goodness? See, this shouldn't be just my job, right? This should be your job. As every day when you get together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, we remind one another we have everything we need life and godliness. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't compromise. And most certainly, don't listen to falsehood. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. And I pray as they talk around the tables that you would open up their hearts, their minds, their voices to share and to encourage and to even debate, if necessary, these things because they're so critical to our effectiveness and fruitfulness in this life. Thank you for Peter. Thank you that he acts as a guide to help us navigate the jungle of life. But we know this, we will come out the other side. We will survive. Your will will be done, and your son will return. And we praise you for that. And we pray it in his name. Amen.